Moving through the Gospel of Mark, we'll finish up over the next couple of weeks, and it's been a great journey looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of Mark and the memories of Peter as he shared with Mark probably all that went on. I, I noticed on TV that they're about to start a new season of, of American Idol, which is like the most popular TV show on. And it's interesting to me why people like that show so much. Um, it's interesting to me why I even watch it on occasion. Um, I quit voting after Sanjaya lost. But, um, <laughs> but really, you know, you think, okay, here's a show about success. One person becoming the American Idol. But the truth is, as I think about it, that show isn't really about success at all. It's really a show about failure and rejection. Because 99% of time on the, on the program is spent with people who will lose. People who will be eliminated. And an awful lot of the casting for the show is deliberately done to show rejection. It's interesting to see people fail. Um, I know a girl who is an incredible singer who auditioned for the show recently and didn't even get anywhere close to the judges. Just the, the preliminary rounds kind of eliminated her. And, I, and she sings better than almost anyone I've heard on the show. And I realized when that happened, they're not really looking for the best or most talented person. They're trying to make an entertaining show, showing people losing, and, and therefore being rejected. And I think one reason why that's fascinating to us is that rejection is, is an emotion, is a phenomena that we can all relate to. We don't like to think about it, being rejected, and yet, for all of us, our, our memory, our past, and that which forms us and, and makes us into who we are is so shaped by what it is to be rejected. Those scars that we carry, you know, when you're born as a little baby, the world revolves around you, but after a little while, you realize that everything doesn't go your way. And some people have been have been hurt by being rejected by their parents, the people who they would most want to depend on at different times. Others rejected by friends or lovers, rejected by their job, people that they were loyal to. Um, life, it seems like, is a progression of rejections. And we try not to think about it. And Doing a sermon on rejection seems like an inappropriate time because Come on, we just did Christmas, and now we have New Year's, and don't you have something you know, nice and peppy and light and airy for us to talk about? But we're going through the book of Mark, and Mark chapter 14 has come up, and this is a chapter where we see where Jesus Christ himself experienced repeated rejection. And you know, as much as I don't like to think about it, and most of us go into denial about the way that rejection has affected us. I think that if we were all honest, we would admit that, yeah, being rejected is something that hurts and impacts us. For some people, holidays are a time of great joy, but for other people, the holidays are times that are really low, and it's very depressing. And 
partly that's due to the fact that, hey, you know, you're celebrating and everyone's talking about, look what I have. And when other people are talking about what they have, some, what they have sometimes we start to reflect on what we don't have. And that inevitably leads us to reflect on rejection and, and the accompanying let down feeling that goes along with it. And so there's a reason why the Lord had this passage come up at this time. Maybe it's for you. Maybe lately you've been feeling rejected and God has something to share with you. You know, over in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53 in the beautiful prophecy of Jesus, talking ahead of time about what Jesus would be like, what his life would be like, and especially his death and what he would do for us. It describes Jesus after starting off by referring to him as a, as a root out of dry ground, a plant that would grow up. But then it says this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Here in Mark 14, we'll go through the passage quickly and then reflect some thoughts on it, but we will see the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and how he got there as he was despised and, and rejected. Here Jesus came to earth to save people. He came out of love. He, he described that to Nicodemus by saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. And in his life, there isn't anything he did against anyone. The people that were rejected by everyone else, he accepted them. He reached out to them and loved them. And he poured his life into everyone around him. He healed people everywhere he went. He taught people. He, he was open to anyone. He would converse with anyone. He was very accessible. And yet we find here at the end of his life, in the last week of his life, and here the last day of his life, rejection. Mark chapter 14, verse 1 says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. The chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of the day, if anyone should have been excited about Jesus' coming, it would have been them. Everything they studied and everything they worked on, their whole life was focused on how people could be connected to God and what the scriptures say. And, and they knew these scriptures well. And believe me, they weren't ignorant of the fact that Jesus was in a disturbing degree, fulfilling so many of the prophecies. And yet, for some reason, they chose that they thought they'd be better off if he was dead. And so here they are, the people that should have been open to him, should have understood what he was doing. They rejected him and wanted to kill him. Now, next in the chapter, we see the story of him being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. And he sat at the table, it says in verse 3, and a woman came having an alabaster flask, very costly oil of spikenard, and she broke the flask and poured it on his head. She was anointing him and blessing him in this way, but there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, 
Why has this fragrant oil wasted? These are Jesus' friends. These are the people who were hanging out with him, who were following him around. And here a woman comes up and just wants to express her love, just wants to express her worship. Jesus has been telling people he's going to die, and, and now she comes and, and shows her devotion in this way. And what do they have to say is, what a waste worshiping Jesus in this way. And then they said, oh, you know, you could have sold it and for 300 denarii and given it to the poor, and they criticized her sharply there in verse 5. So they didn't think he was worth it. They thought it'd be better to give it to poor people. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. Whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you don't always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. How would you feel if someone was expressing their affection for you and gave you a nice present, and then your friend saw it and said, why would you waste money on something like that? Why would you do such a thing? How would you feel if someone you know, showered you with a gift, wanted to do something nice for you, and, and then you, know, you just said, you shouldn't have done that. This is what was happening here. This woman understood that Jesus was about to die. Everyone should have understood it. He had been talking about it constantly. But now here she is expressing her love in an extravagant way, and everyone else around was just going, this is a waste. This is not worth it. And Jesus says, believe me, she's done something special that you don't understand. But how he must have felt that most of the people around him didn't get it. And when one person worshipped, everyone else thought it was stupid. But we read on in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, one of the closest to Jesus, those who were chosen to be with him, to be discipled by him, Judas, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. One out of 12 of his own disciples wanted him dead and sold him out. Can you imagine? And Jesus knew this was happening. What could Jesus have possibly done to Judas to warrant this kind of treatment? Oh, many people have speculated what was Judas thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it tells us that here one of Jesus' closest friends sold him out for money. Now they went to celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Passover. And Jesus told the disciples to go into the city and you'll find a guy carrying a pitcher of water and he will have a room that's prepared for us. This is what we have come to call the upper room. And so they went there just as Jesus had said and they began to prepare the Passover. And verse 17, in the evening he came with the twelve. 
Verse 18, now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Jesus knew that one of his closest was going to sell him out. They began to be sorrowful, to say one by one, Is it I? Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It's one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. One of you who's sharing this meal with me is going to betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as that is, is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Jesus chose Judas. Jesus loved Judas. Jesus served Judas the way he served everyone else. Judas had every advantage that everyone else had. And Jesus' concern now is poor Judas. Because it had to happen to fulfill Scripture, but, oh man, he'd be better off if he hadn't have even been born. Not because of what God would do to him, because of what it would do to himself as he would realize what he had done and have that, that horror of selling out Jesus and recognizing that and, and then ultimately taking his own life. Boy. Now as we read on, Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, take, eat, this is my body, drink this, this is my blood. And after they celebrated that and sang a hymn and walked out to the Mount of Olives, look at verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus said, you know what? None of you are really going to hang with me. Jesus recognized what they didn't realize, and that is it's not just about one guy that would sell him out. It's that they would all fade away. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Peter, he was so confident of himself. You know, anytime somebody is just gushing to you about, I will always be there for you. You can always depend on me. I'm not like these other guys. I'm, you know, the other disciples, I know one of them's going to betray you. That's not me. I know everybody else is going to be scattered, but not me. Believe me, I'll always be there for you. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But Peter spoke even more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the other disciples go, yeah, us too. <laughs> Peter was Jesus' closest friend. He was there during all of the important times. And Jesus is going, Peter, you think that you're not going to burn me, but I'm telling you, before you hear the cock crow twice, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know me. These other guys, hey, I can believe it, but not me. <laughs> How must that have felt to Jesus? Not only to know that Peter would deny him, but to know that Peter would deny the fact that he was going to deny him. Peter didn't even see his own frailty and his own 
weakness, much less the, the loneliness that Jesus would endure when he was left by everyone. Well, then they came out into the Garden of Gethsemane there on the side of the Mount of Olives and told the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took the three who were closest to him, Peter, James, and John, with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Sometimes we think that Jesus being rejected probably didn't bother him that much. The truth is rejection hurt him more than it's ever hurt you because he's a perfect man, and he has been tempted in everything as we are, and yet just more so. And knowing what he was going to go through was disturbing him deeply. And so he said to Peter and James and John, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless... Not what I will, but what you will. Now he's asking his own father, change this, do something else, you're God. But if it's what you're going to do, I'll I'll submit to you. How painful that must have been. And then he came and he found Peter, James, and John sleeping. And he said to Peter, the one like I say, who was the closest to him. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus understood. I know this is hard for you, but I know you mean well. Pray. Hang in there. Don't bail on me now. Watch and pray. Again, he went away, verse 39, and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they didn't even know what to say. They were like deer in the headlights, uh, sorry. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He said, time's about up. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with the great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Can you imagine being betrayed with a kiss? Maybe some of you have. It's, it's horrible to, to be showing your affection and yet behind all of that betrayal and rejection. They laid their hands on him and took him, and one of those who stood by, we know it was Peter from the other Gospels, but Peter didn't tell Mark that. Just leave that out. Drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know that Jesus ended up healing the ear. Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
Then verse 50, the bottom line of this whole chapter, then they all forsook him and fled. Everybody left. Everyone rejected him. Everyone ran away. Even big mouth Peter, Mr. Cut off a guy's ear, I'll never let you down, took off. He stayed back at a distance. Verse 51 tells about a certain young man who was following, kind of hiding in the bushes, and somebody saw him and grabbed him, and he ran out of his clothes and ran naked. Most people believe that this was Mark. You could see why Mark wouldn't say it was Mark. (laughs) Kind of embarrassing, but he'd rather be embarrassed by running naked than to be caught as a supporter of Jesus. So they led him away to the Sanhedrin, and verse 54 said, Peter followed him at a distance, went into the courtyard, and sat there with the servants, warming himself at the fire. Chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were trying to get people to testify against Jesus, and in verse 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies didn't agree. Imagine being Jesus. Your friends have have left you. One of your friends sold you out. The others have bailed completely. The religious leaders have rejected you and they want to kill you. And now they're trumping up phony witnesses to lie about you. And there's no one who stands in your defense to say it's not true. Verse 61, the high priest was talking to him. The man who was supposed to represent the people to God man who should have been bowing down to him. And he said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus finally spoke and said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The entire Sanhedrin, those 70 Jewish leaders. And it wasn't enough to condemn him to death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands, uttering complete humiliation, rejection, denial, betrayal, in every way, it all came down on him there. Understand that. And then one piece of unfinished business, Peter was below in the courtyard, and one of the little servant girls of the high priest came and saw Peter warming himself, and she looked at him and said, weren't you with Jesus of Nazareth? He denied it. Said, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. He didn't pay attention to that. Servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, I'm telling you, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. He had this flashback of Jesus saying, 
before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. <laughs> now in the next chapters, we'll see next week, Jesus was killed. He was hung on a cross and he died. Why did Jesus have to experience this rejection? Why was it necessary? I, you know, I understand. He, he came to this earth, God in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, and, and yet he came to die, and he understood that. He needed to shed his blood so that it would pay for our sins. As much as that's difficult to conceive of, the Bible teaches that clearly. His death was necessary, but how about his rejection? I mean, couldn't he have died with people cheering for him? Couldn't he have died with at least a few of his close friends hanging in there going, come on, I'm praying for you. I know you're going to rise again. Apparently not. The Father wouldn't let Jesus suffer anything that wasn't necessary. And a part of it has to do with qualifying Jesus for the role that he would play as our high priest, that he needed to connect with us. But as I look at this, I think, okay, what possible good can come from rejection? Because if we can discover this in Jesus' rejection, this extreme rejection that he endured, maybe we can make some sense out of the rejection that we suffer. Because again, you are completely deluded if you believe that, oh yeah, and rejection's never really affected me too much. I've pretty much been accepted by everyone. I was always popular. Hey, you can tell your friends that, but you know different. You know what rejection feels like. And, and your loving Father allowed you to experience that, and you're not finished experiencing it. So why? What's the point? Well, there are a few things that I see that were accomplished here and that are accomplished in our rejection as well. They, you, it really starts with the idea of reality. This world is a place where we're, we're led by lies. People's relationships are based on pretending. We, we play games and the devil lies to us and we believe things that aren't true. And Jesus Christ came to help us to face the truth. He said, I am the truth. The truth will set you free. See, because we're trapped by dysfunction. We're trapped by lies and games. We're, we're trapped by pretending. And that is destroying us as people, destroys us personally. And so one of the first things that betrayal and rejection does is it helps us to face reality. See, if you have a friend who burns you, they didn't suddenly change. You just found out the truth about that person. You found out that what you thought you had, maybe it wasn't quite that way. Now, Jesus knew everyone's heart. And yet, by him facing reality for us, he goes ahead of us and lets us know, I want to do this for real. I'm not going to play games. Most of what we do societally is a societal contract whereby I say, look, I'll lie to you and you lie to me, and let's find some sort of a peace in that. Let's all just pretend 
so that we can get along. It's that ultimate mental illness that is living a lie and being willing to. There is a song that Sheryl Crow used to sing and uh, called Are You Strong Enough to Be My Man? And in there, there's a line that says, lie to me, I promise, I'll believe. And isn't that kind of what we try to do with our lives? We like, I don't want the truth. I, don't, I want you to lie to me, and then I'll lie to you, and everything will be okay. And that's the way this world functions apart from Jesus Christ. But Jesus came, and he goes, no, you need to see this for real. You need to see reality for what it is. And for every one of us, when, when we are betrayed, when we are rejected, it's an opportunity for us to come out of the deception and the dysfunction and the deceit that this society places on us and says, I want you to see reality. You're closer to the truth every time you get let down by someone. You know, again, we can pretend that life isn't that way. You know, one of the rejections that's painful for, for many of us, is when we try out for something and we don't make it. Oh, maybe you're not going to try out for American Idol, but maybe you've tried out for a sports team or cheerleading or something like that. Now, I think there's a good thing that comes from discovering that you're not as good as your parents thought you were. You know, hey, it's time to face reality. And you ask somebody out and they laugh at you and you go... I didn't think that would happen. It hurts, but come on. you got to figure out where you fit. Our society is trying to eliminate all of that by saying everyone plays. Everyone who tries out makes the team. Everyone who goes out for a sport gets a trophy. Hey, life isn't that way. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can deal with the realities of this world. And rejection helps that. Even as Jesus unmasked the deceit, the games that they were playing, and they saw, look what they're doing. Imagine for the disciples, they really believed that they weren't like that. And yet, boom, Peter recognized, I'm not what my mom thought I was. I'm not what I've tried to convince everyone that I am. Look at me. I failed. I rejected the one who I love. Another thing that rejection does, and this is definitely true for us, and it was somewhat true for Jesus as well, rejection delivers us from an addiction to people-pleasing. Now, for Jesus, he's the only one who wasn't addicted to people-pleasing, but by being rejected, at least it showed he wasn't doing this for the applause. He wasn't do the, doing this for the accolades and to gather people around him and being fed by his own ego, by other people contributing to that. F for us, we're, most of us, in one way or another, we are hopelessly addicted to what people think of us. So much so that we would rather live a lie than to face the truth. But when people reject you, it does cause you to go, often those who reject you are those that you've been addicted to pleasing them in a really unhealthy way. When they let you down, 
that reality comes in and helps you to not be so focused on pleasing other people because you realize, you know, everything I do to try to please people, they're not going to be pleased. There's something that we call a Messiah complex. And it is believing somehow that you can pour yourself out for others and they're all going to appreciate you. And as I heard someone say one time, the only minister I've ever known who didn't have a Messiah complex was the Messiah. Because when everyone left, he still did what he had to do. He wasn't driven by an addiction to people-pleasing. But most of us are. And being rejected, being hurt, will often deliver us from that, that addiction that's, that will destroy us, that robs us of who we really are. But thirdly, what this did when Jesus was rejected in this way, in a way that could never happen otherwise, it proved the reality of his love. It proved the genuineness of his love. See, what we generally call love usually isn't. What we call love is more of a social contract that I will be good to you and then you be good to me and oh, we love each other, isn't this nice? But love is something that is not contingent on the response. Love is something that is given freely regardless of what comes back in return. And so every time we are rejected by someone we love, we'll find out if we really love them or not. Because if you go, oh, I love them so much, and then they reject you, you go, I hate them so much. That love turns into despitefulness, bitterness, hatred. and You know, they didn't do that to you. They did you a real favor because you found out that your love was really just trying to get something. You know, if you give someone a gift and then they don't give you a gift and you resent it, guess what? That wasn't a gift. That was a deal. That was a contract. That was an offer in compromise. Love continues to love when it's rejected. And rejection is the only real opportunity to find out if your love is real. That's why, you know, Paul over in Romans said, but God showed his love toward us, Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, he came to save the world. But the ones, the world to him, the closest ones to him, the ones he love the most, it's inner circle. And of those 12, certainly Peter, James, and John, and of those three, Peter was the one who is primary always in relationship with Jesus. John, very close, called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Peter was the one that Jesus was always referring to. Everyone else was always mad at Peter, you know, jealous of Peter and everything. But now here Jesus is facing death and going, what am I doing this for? The guys who are closest to me are rejecting me. They all ran away. Why should I die for these unnamed masses who are going to come hundreds and thousands of years down the road 
when my best friends, the guys I spent years with, are rejecting me. If Jesus was like us, that's what he would start thinking. He'd go, well, I tried. I loved. But they aren't responding to my love, and so I'm done. I'm out of here. Okay, Father, beam me up. I've had it. But he didn't hesitate to die because his love was the real thing. His love wasn't contingent on response. And for us, we will have in our lifetime many opportunities to find out if we really love. And those opportunities will come when those we love let us down, reject us, fail us. And that's not the time to bail on love. That's the time to respond with love, and then you will know, I really did love. I continue to love this person because I'm not trying to force them back at me. I'm not suffocating them. I'm not stalking them. I just love them enough that I'm letting them go and wishing them well. And I don't, I don't resent the years that I spent pouring myself out for them, the time that I spent with them. No, it's, I love them. That doesn't change because they've rejected me. When that happens, you'll know that you really loved. Until that happens, you'll never know. And that's how we know Jesus' love. Finally, there was a connection that Jesus made. There's an understanding that happens only when you suffer what someone else has suffered, or worse. Jesus, as our high priest, had to be tempted in every way as we are. He needed to identify with us. It's why he became a man, and it's why he suffered. See, he knew that for me, the most painful experiences of my life would be when people I love let me down. He knew what that rejection would feel like. He knew what the taunting of the crowd felt like. He knew what it felt like to be booed and humiliated because he went through all of that. And it helps me to know that he understands when I hurt in that way. But for each of us, too, it's a preparation for connection. There's an understanding and an experience that comes from rejection that will help us to be there for others when they experience that rejection. And you cannot play down the value of that. I can't even explain to you how important it is that there be people around who understand what it feels like to go through what you've gone through and if none of them understand it, there is one who does, and that is Jesus Christ, who has experienced it. You know, we kind of think, oh, for Jesus, this probably didn't bother him that much. This rejection hurt him more than any rejection you've ever experienced, because he loved perfectly, and he was let down so totally and completely. In fact, there's one more rejection that he experienced that I didn't talk about because it's not something that you'll experience, but we'll see it in the next chapter. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was rejected by the Father. As he cried out, Father, why? My God, why have you forsaken me? 
And that was what hurt the most. But he did that so that you would never have to. Oh, you may be rejected by every person that you ever know or love, but you will never be rejected by God because Jesus took that one for you. He suffered that rejection so that you would never have to be. If you are rejected by God, it's your choice. You rejected him. He didn't reject you. But Jesus, as our high priest, knew complete and total rejection. And by the way, that's one other good thing that comes from rejection. Sometimes we say, well, you know, you find out who your friends really are. Yeah, when it comes down to it, by the process of elimination, you will find out that there's really only one that you can depend on. You know, I can tell you I understand, but I can't tell you, don't worry, I'll always be there for you, because I might not. I'm not going to be like Peter going, yeah, everybody else is going to fail, but I'm not. Don't be so foolish. I'm going to go, man, all I can say is, believe me, I know what it feels like to be rejected. And I understand what you're going through, but I can tell you something, there is someone who will never reject you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he could say, I'm there for you, and I will always be there for you. And when people reject us, we discover by the process of elimination the one who we can depend on, the one who will never reject us. And by contrast, he becomes so beautiful. He becomes so valuable to us because he is everything that every person we've ever trusted could not possibly be. He's the one who will always be there for us. And that is worth all the pain and all the rejection and all the hurt, all the times we're let down by others and all the times we let down others to figure out you are designed to trust in only one. And he is the one who made you. He is the one who loves you completely. Everyone else, sooner or later, they're going to fail you. That's reality. If you want to go into denial and live that way, fine. But the truth is, there's only one person that you should ever completely trust, and that's God. And he loves you, and he will always be there for you. And even when Jesus was feeling, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I'll trust you. And I don't care what you're going through. And I, and I know it hurts. And I, and I can relate to that. But I, but I want to tell you something. There's one that you can say, here, I'm going to trust my spirit to you. He won't let you down. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the last one standing. The one who will never disappoint us, will never let us down. Lord, as we commend our spirits into your hands, we also commit to you all the pain that we've endured in our lives, all the disappointment, all the rejection. And we know that as we give that to you, you understand. We see it in this chapter. Boy, do you understand. 
Thank you for the connection that comes when we understand that you understand. Deliver us from our people-pleasing addiction. Teach us what real love is. Help us to accept reality and deal with it. But help us to always know you're the one that we can lean on, depend on, and trust in completely. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.